Hello and welcome to episode number 21 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about a couple of Bach's wedding cantatas. We're going to begin with the most famous of his half a dozen or so wedding cantatas, BWV 202, Depart Now or Vanish, Dismal Shadows in English translation. This was probably composed during Bach's Weimar period, from 1708 to 1717, probably before 1715. And the librettist is now assumed to have been the court poet there, Zalme Frank, who appears to have authored most of Bach's cantatas in this period. Little is known about the particular occasion which prompted the work, but according to noted Bach scholar Joshua Rifkin, the work was probably written for a celebration after the ceremony, likely for a couple close to Bach's age and social rank. The cantata in G major is written for solo soprano, typical for the wedding cantatas, along with oboe strings and continuo. It unfolds in nine movements, a bit longer than some of Bach's other wedding cantatas. The work opens with a lovely adagio aria for soprano, which will take a couple of minutes to examine. We first encounter a serene introduction featuring ascending string arpeggios establishing the key. Halfway through the third measure, the oboe enters with a sustained tone, followed by a flowing melodic line which initially descends before working its way back up in an undulating arc to meet the entrance of the soprano soloist. The harmony is peaceful to this point, although the oboe, by nature of both its timbre and lyrical undulating line, already manages to suggest a hint of poignance, if not melancholy. Employing again the English translations of Francis Brown from the BachCantatas.com website, the first line of text is, Give way now, dismal shadows, frost and wind, go to rest. The soprano begins with a somewhat truncated version of the oboe's gentle opening melody, but it's not long before Bach reminds us of the grimness of the winter season that has just passed away. At the words dismal shadows, the vocal melody leaps an emotional minor sixth to a chromatic note introducing a series of unexpectedly intense chromatic chords, many of them diminished seventh chords with unconventional resolutions. Because of this new harmonic context, the vocal line and oboe countermelody paired with it now lose any sense of pastoral innocence momentarily twisting above the disruptive chords as he repeats the words, dismal shadows. But as the soprano moves on to the text, frost and wind go to rest, the melody line seems more stable, and at the words, go to rest, the underlying harmonies also find rest, a secure cadence on the dominant chord. Let's hear that much of it. As you heard near the end of my example, once we arrive in D major, the tension derived from all those chromatic chords has dissipated, and we return to an abbreviated repetition of the opening bars as the first two lines of text begin to repeat. But as the words dismal shadows make their return, the mood again darkens. The treatment is not the same. There is no ascending minor sixth leap on the word dismal this time but the overall effect is similar, although this time Bach moves toward G minor, a direction hinted at earlier, but now more fully consummated. 
Nevertheless, when the frost and wind once more go to rest, we almost magically find ourselves back in G major, after the soprano makes a florid descent toward the original tonic of G. Frost and wind going to rest are then referenced a final time, and an instrumental interlude based on previous ideas takes us to the middle section of the aria, marked andante, and usually taken quite a bit faster than the first section. There is a little to hint at the introspective quality of the opening section here. The text is, Flora's delight will grant our hearts nothing but joyful fortune, for she comes bearing flowers. The vocal melody is, shall we say, perky, as befits the text, with many short, rhythmically distinctive motives, often repeated directly or sequenced. The middle section is in two parts. The first begins in G major, but moves fairly quickly to E minor. There is a brief instrumental interlude where the oboe again comes into prominence with a new but equally lively and rhythmically distinctive phrase. After this, the Flora's Delight text repeats with a vocal melody that re-employs many of the same motives from the first part of the middle section before stretching out at the reference to Flora's bringing flowers into a somewhat more sustained and frequently sequenced melodic idea. This section at 11 bars is somewhat longer than the first and concludes on a solid cadence on D major. Here is the middle section. At the conclusion of the middle section, the score indicates da capo, and we head back to the first section of the aria. We've encountered da capo arias before, of course, but some of them do seem a bit problematic when the middle section is so completely contrasting with the first section. Historians often refer to the middle sections of da capo arias as representing a different shade of the original affection presented in the first section. But in this case, it's really difficult to hear the high-spirited, clearly joyous middle section as being simply a different shade of the affection in the first section, which is more introspective and uncertain, if not positively gloomy, at least at first. But you have to remember that we're not actually progressing from one affection to the other, even though the aria seems to unfold progressively in time. The fact is, both of the affections contained in the aria the more melancholy state of the first section and the more joyous, celebratory state of the second section are both true. The more joyous middle section is not in some way erased by a return to the more contemplative mood of the first section. And the other thing to remember is that these affections, as in the doctrine of affections, which we've mentioned in passing before, are more of an intellectual construct, a guide to invention, which suggests musical devices and figures which, if employed properly, could be considered the broad equivalent of affections or states of the soul suggested by the text. So, an affection is not a mood per se, although it's tempting to think of them in that way, and admittedly, the language I've been using to describe both sections might easily be thought of as references to mood. So it's a difficult concept, and not one that can be clarified by looking at any single aria. So for now, we're going to move ahead to the rest of the cantata. The next movement is a straightforward recitative, starting and ending in C major with the text, The world becomes new again, on hills and in valleys, beauty will unite and be doubly fair, the day is free from cold. The next movement, another da capo aria, marked allegro assai in C major and in 12-8 time, begins with an exuberant instrumental introduction, 
a near constant flow of sixteenth notes, beginning with large ascending leaps, but thereafter intermingling steps and arpeggio-like skips played by cello or bassoon, depending on the performance. Rifkin has commented that what he refers to as this vaulting continuo line represents Phoebus coursing on his chariot. Depending on the realization, harpsichord or organ usually fills in the chords beneath this flow. The question, as usual, is how much filling in does the harpsichord or organ player do in support of the cello soloistic activity? Not surprisingly, the answer is very dramatically. Some performances have the harpsichordist carrying on quite actively, often drawing from motives which will eventually appear in the vocal line. Others are more modest in this respect, including the performance we're hearing today. The initial cello statement, four bars long, returns sometimes in modified form or in a new key, several times in the course of the first section of the aria. The soprano makes her first appearance in bar five, with a brief melismatic preview of the melodic idea that is to dominate the first section, singing, Phoebus hurries with swift horses, with the word hurries breaking into a flurry of sixteenths comparable to those heard in the cello's semi-frantic introduction. And things continue to move swiftly, with the cello immediately picking up its busy sixteenth note flow once again after the briefest of pauses. Then, two and a half measures later, the cello pattern interrupts itself only to begin again as the soprano enters in earnest with the text, Phoebus hurries with swift horses through the newborn world. The soprano's melody at this point, although this time starting on the third of the tonic chord, resembles a more well-developed version of her initial statement, although minus that early flurry of sixteenth notes. After two and a half bars, it comes to a pause after a dramatic descending leap to an A at the word Welt or World. At that point, the cello restarts its familiar pattern, this time on D. The soprano then repeats the text through the newborn world twice more with an increasingly elaborate descending contour, the last time starting from a G and ending an octave lower, as the cello breaks its pattern to bolster the soprano's melodic movement with a solid cadence on G. We'll hear the movement to that point. The soprano then repeats the entire text, reverting back to her initial statement with a long melisma of sixteenth notes on the word alt or hurry, but also exploiting motives from her second statement as she hints briefly at other key centers. Meanwhile, the cello naturally adapts itself to the new harmonic circumstances, but otherwise sticks closely to its previous patterns as we head to a cadence on the original tonic to finish off the first section of the aria. After a four-measure transition provided by the cello and continuo, we reach the middle section of the aria. It employs the text, Yes, since this delights him so much, he himself wants to become a lover. In this aria, the middle section certainly does constitute a different shade of the same affection heard in the first section. Even though we quickly move to the relative minor, a minor, a typical ploy in major key da capo arias, the cello continues the bustling patterns that dominated the first section, adjusted for the new key, of course. The soprano melody is new, unfolding mostly in gently ascending contours, although it occasionally introduces more dramatic ascending gestures, as in the leap of a minor sixth to a dissonant note at the words he himself. As Bach moves briefly through other tonal centers before settling on E minor, the text is repeated, and Bach at one point breaks off the initial yes or ya-ya and plays with it a bit, 
presumably to underline Phoebus's sense of delight, the minor key notwithstanding, and as the middle section draws to a close, the words he himself continue to be illustrated with large leaps. Here's the middle section, 11 bars in all. And then, as you heard at the end of my example, we take the da capo and repeat the first section, rounding off an aria which is unquestionably effective if a little lacking in subtlety compared to the first. The next recitative states, Therefore love also seeks its delight when purple laughs in the meadows, when Flora's splendor becomes glorious, and when in his kingdom, like the beautiful flowers, hearts also are victorious in their ardor. Musically, Bach moves swiftly back to A minor, then pays a brief visit to G major, before again maneuvering his way to E minor, as the continual bass line begins a walking pattern that adds an almost peculiarly determined air to the proceedings, perhaps in deference to the ardor of the inspired hearts. Here is the recitative. The next aria further expands on the pleasures of love in springtime. The text is, When the spring breezes blow and waft through colorful fields, it is love's custom also to sneak out, to see what is his own glory, and that, people believe, is this, when one heart kisses another. The key remains in E minor, the meter is common time, and the tempo indication allegro. The solo instrument featured this time in the instrumental introduction is the violin, which against a walking continual bass line presents an attractive triad bass melody starting on the fifth of the scale and moving up the E minor chord in skips and steps in a distinctive rhythmic pattern featuring a dotted eighth followed by two thirty-second notes. This is followed by an arch-like stepwise descent back down to the starting point, all of this happening in the first measure. Measure two basically replicates the first, the whole pattern moved up a third over a harmonic shift to G major. A flow of sixteenth notes follows, also beginning with an ascending leap, which is repeated, sometimes sequentially, three times over strong beat continual chords as Bach returns to E minor. The last two bars of the introduction requote the violin's opening bar before driving to a cadence. Here is the opening six-bar introduction. As we've seen before, the soprano melody, which enters in bar 7, presents the first two lines of the text, employing a somewhat simpler version of the relatively florid violin introduction. And, as in the second aria, it then gives way to a repeat of the last two measures of that introduction. Then, again as in the second aria, the soprano takes up the text and begins with the same melody once again, this time continuing on through the text, it is love's custom to sneak out to see what is in his own glory, to a rather simple new phrase that carries us to a cadence on G major. We'll hear the soprano's melody to that point. Then, dear friends, 
The first four lines of text are then repeated, opening with a simple little four-note motive that is heard four times in a row before passing on to a more complex phrase, which, drawing on the soprano's original melodic statement, transports us eventually to the key of B minor. This passage, at least the first part of it, underscores the fact that the musical language for this aria is, on the whole, rather simple, at times almost folk-like in its repetition of short phrases. And, speaking of repetition, as you could hear at the end of my example, the solo violin returns to duplicate its original opening passage, now beginning in B minor. Even though this is not a da capo aria, we do encounter a contrasting section of sorts, as we approach the conclusion of the aria. As B minor yields to D major, and the final part of the text is employed, and that, people believe, is this, when one heart kisses another. The soprano moves up higher in her range, and we hear a new thematic idea in the violin, alternating with and filling gaps between the soprano's phrases. But, of course, the soprano continues to draw on older, now quite familiar motives, including the one with which she began the aria, the one characterized by the distinctive rhythm of a dotted eighth followed by two thirty-second notes. And, before we know it, another very familiar motive reappears, the little phrase you heard repeat four times in the last example. The soprano also exploits a few new ideas, one broader phrase in particular, which marks our brief stop-off in the key of G major. But the violin continues its familiar flow of 16th notes, and in the end, as we return to E minor for the final cadence, we're struck more with the familiarity of the ideas we encounter and the overall genial coherence of the aria as a whole than with any of its unique elements. Here is the final bit of the aria. The following recitative directs us back to the couple whose wedding is being celebrated, and this is good fortune, when through a lofty gift of fate two souls obtain one jewel, which is resplendent with health and blessings. Musically it takes us first to B minor and then, with the aid of a long melisma on the word Ziegen or blessing, to D major, as the continuo bass line begins to provide a steady pulse and the recitative style is transformed into more of a metrically defined little song. The next aria makes it abundantly clear that the stresses of winter have been banished, and that all will be sweetness, life, and gaiety for the married couple. The text is, To become adept in love, to jest and caress, is better than Flora's passing pleasure. Here the waves flow, here laugh and watch the palms of victory on lips and breast. This dance-like aria in D major is set in a brisk 3-8, and its instrumental introduction of 22 bars features a jaunty oboe tune, its many sequential patterns, both ascending and descending, guaranteeing immediate accessibility. 
The soprano melody is equally delightful, sharing some of the same qualities, and perfectly designed as a counterpoint to the initial oboe tune, which accompanies it note for note for the first eight bars. The next part of the soprano's melody continues on in similar style, but is modified to allow for a little harmonic adventurousness, at least to the extent that Bach now moves clearly to A major, the key of the dominant, and cadences there. We'll hear that much from the soprano's entrance to the modulation to the dominant, all sung to the first two lines of text. An instrumental interlude by the oboe, based primarily on the second eight measures of its original introduction, intervenes, again cadencing on A. And the soprano returns, still with the first two lines of text, but immediately pushing us back to the original tonic of D major. The soprano's melodic ideas are somewhat new, but still clearly based on her earlier melodic motives, especially the repeated lower neighbor tone figures based on two sixteenths and an eighth, which we've heard several times before. And then, after eight bars, the soprano quotes precisely the first four bars of her initial melody, before modifying the next four to bring about a cadence once again on D major. The oboe then again replicates its opening introduction, cadencing on D major, to take us to the middle section of the aria. Here, we finally encounter the last two lines of text. Here the waves flow, here laugh and watch, the palms of victory on lips and breast. The middle section does not provide a significant change in tone or mood. Many of the earlier motives are re-employed here. But we do immediately launch into B minor. The rhythms are a bit more persistent, and we initially miss the interplay with the accompanying oboe, although it starts up again after eight bars. The fact that Bach is serious about providing some minor key contrast with the earlier major key joviality is made even clearer as he passes into F-sharp minor as the soprano completes her 16-bar statement. The oboe then takes over again, once more drawing on thematic ideas from the second eight bars of the introduction. Tonally, the oboe seems to be wandering further afield than it actually is, and it finishes up its interlude in F-sharp minor as well. Then the soprano enters for the second half of the middle section. Again, short phrases and sequences abound, but the driving rhythms do sound a bit more ominous given the minor key context. It's not exactly sinister, of course. As I mentioned before, the presence of a minor key does not necessarily mean the music is really any darker. But nevertheless, this particular setting might not be what someone would expect for a text about laughing and watching the palms of victory on lips and breast. But as we've seen so many times before, the need for musical contrast makes its own demands, and Bach clearly felt it necessary to provide some relief from the good-natured folksiness of the first section of the aria, if for no other reason that when the first half returns for the da capo, it again sounds fresh and carefree. Here's the middle section of the aria returning for a few measures back to the original section. The final recitative in a bright G major begins as cheerfully as one might imagine, with a text, May the union of chaste love, beloved couple, be free 
from the fickleness of change. But then, out of nowhere, some dark clouds appear as the text goes on. May no sudden accident, no thunderclap, frighten your amorous desires. The thunderclap is introduced by a rapidly descending line and a diminished chord, which provide a bit of a jolt. But fortunately, we do regain our composure by the end of the recitative back securely in G major. So sei das Band der Kurschen Liebe Verlobte zwei Vom Unbestand des Wechsels frei Kein jeher Fall Noch stolle Klang Erschrecke die verliebten Triebe The final brief movement is again dance-like, a gavotte this time, perfect for the dignity of the occasion, but not without some playful features. And since courtly gavats were at one time associated with kissing, and then later the presentation of flowers, it seems a perfect conclusion for this cantata. The text is, See in contentment a thousand bright and prosperous days, so that soon as time passes, your love may bear its flower. The instrumental introduction with melody shared by oboe and first violin has a courtly air indeed, beginning with its two upbeats and proceeding in mostly homophonic fashion with rhythmic patterns often repeating every two bars. Here is the instrumental opening. When the soprano enters, she does so with a somewhat more elaborate version of the instrumental melody which introduced the aria, against a new and elegant counter-melody shared by oboe and violin. The vocal melody is more flowing and a little more chromatic in places compared to the instrumental version, but they largely share the same tonal goals and both end securely on G major. Bach goes through the text twice, the second setting, a little simpler than the first, rhythmically speaking, and then, after only 16 bars, we repeat the instrumental introduction, and the aria and the cantata draw to a close. Rifkin suggests that the existing score may be missing an additional stanza or two, since the final movement may seem a bit abrupt, but it's hard to disagree with the sentiments expressed. It's an interesting cantata and worthy of its reputation, even though its most subtle moments tend to come early, and later movements put more emphasis on good cheer and celebration. Cantata number 195 is a very different sort of cantata, obviously written for a much grander occasion than the previous cantata. It's an ambitious, sacred cantata written for a wedding mass for which the surviving version may well be the third, at any rate, it's a late work, usually assigned to the last few years of Bach's life. The circumstances for the occasion are again a bit murky. The first part was to be sung before the ceremony, presumably, and the brief second part after, but it employs not only a large orchestra, but elaborate choruses, dual groups actually, an SATB solo group and an SATB ripieno group, not necessarily a large one, that does very little on its own, but fortifies the solo group passages from time to time. It also makes use of chorales, and makes several references to the glory of God, giving a serious religious cast to the whole work. It seems obvious that this cantata, at least this version of this cantata, 
was composed for a wealthy, if not noble, couple. Julian Minchin, in his always excellent commentary on the Bacantadas on the Bacantadas.com site, suggests that the bridegroom may have been a pastor, but also refers to the fact that Bach scholar Albrecht Durer suggests that, given the text, he may have been a lawyer, which might more readily explain the deep pockets necessary for hiring the number of musicians involved here, including performers on three trumpets and timpani, as well as flutes, oboes, strings, and continuo. The opening movement is divided into two contrasting sections, each based on a different verse of Psalm 97. The text for the first section, from verse 11, is, For the righteous person the light must always rise again, and joy for devout hearts. In D major, common time, and typically taken at a fast tempo, the movement begins with a rousing instrumental introduction, with fanfare motives abounding and rapid scale lines usually ascending, perhaps in deference to the text mention of rising, although the rising scales themselves mostly appear at the word gerechten or righteous. After twelve bars, the soloists and ripiano singers leap in together, quoting from the opening bars of the instrumental introduction. Immediately thereafter, the soprano soloist is introduced with her own version of the same two bars. She's quickly joined by all voices, all of the other soloists and the ripiano group, but also for only two measures. Then the soprano and alto soloists take their turn, also a brief one. The ripiano voices then interrupt again with a repeat of the opening two bars, after which the top three solo voices again take control. After yet another punctuation from the ripiano groups, we finally hear all four soloists together, although more ripiano group interjections await us as we proceed. This is concerto-like in some ways, as Minchum and others have pointed out, since Bach keeps alternating small groups and large groups, but it is not exactly typical concerto form. Let's hear that much of the movement. As we continue through the first section of the movement, the disposition of the various voices becomes a little less predictable, and both the solo group and piano groups are more diversified in texture, although they do combine forces for an extended passage as we approach the end of the section. But the same motives, all taken from the instrumental introduction, continue to dominate throughout. All of this is broken off fairly abruptly on the dominant of the dominant, actually a dominant seventh on E, as we enter the second section, a fugue, now in 6 eight time. The text is, You who are righteous, rejoice in the Lord, and thank Him and praise His holiness. The soloists are the first to enter this time, seemingly in A major, the key of the dominant. The tenor comes first, and three bars later the alto, with the soprano and bass following at three-measure intervals. Once the imitation has run its course, we hear a brief episode. As we've seen many times before, Motives from the fugal subject, or variants of them, still get plenty of attention, and some new ones are hurled back and forth between the voices. And even the trumpet takes a turn, coming in with the fugue subject up a fifth from its original appearance. Following the trumpet statement, solo and ripiano groups join together, the combined sopranos announcing the subject securely in D major, 
while the other voices provide a rhythmically active backdrop. Three bars later, the combined altos chime in, and after a slight delay, the tenors and basses follow suit. Following this, we hear an episode again, clearly related to the earlier one, where we again hear some quasi-imitation, rapid melismas on the word joyfully, tossed back and forth between the combined voices, as trills are introduced in the upper voices and in the trumpets, which take on an increasingly important solo role. It's impressively busy, although there's not actually as much going on here as in many other big Bach choral fugues, but it's all appropriately joyful and celebratory. And when Bach interrupts the contrapuntal flow for powerful, rhythmically distinctive homophonic proclamations on the words and thank him before the final drive to the cadence, the effect is extremely impressive. We'll hear the first part of the second section, Fugue. The bass recitative that follows in G major begins to relate the text more specifically to the matter at hand. To the joyful light of those who are righteous and devout, there must always come a new increase, which well-being and happiness multiply for them, also for this new couple, in whom we honor righteousness as much as virtue, is today a joyful light prepared that shows their new well-being, oh, what a desirable union, so may these two find their happiness one in another. The most remarkable thing about the accompaniment here is the restless activity of the cello, which is by no means satisfied merely to sustain harmonic support for the bass's mostly perfunctory melodic line, but keeps up a flow of 16th note triplets throughout most of the recitative, perhaps to suggest, according to Mincham, either the couple's happiness or the energy and redemptive power of the divine light. Christoph Wolff believes that this recitative and the one that follows the next aria were both reinvented for this final, late version of the cantata. Here is a little bit of the recitative. Dem Freudenlicht gerechter Frommen muss stets ein neuer Zuwachs Wohl und Glück bei ihnen mehrt. Auch diesem neuen Paar, an dem man so Gerechtigkeit als Tugend ehrt, ist heut ein Freudenlicht bereit. The next movement is an aria in the key of G and in 2-4 time, sung by the bass. Surprisingly, it's the only aria in the cantata. The text is, Praise God's goodness and truth. Praise Him with lively joy. Praise God, betrothed couple, for your union today. Let's you find pure blessing. Let's light and joy become new. The text, though perfectly appropriate and linking back to earlier ideas, is unremarkable, but the musical style here is a bit unusual. There's no question that Bach has captured the musical equivalent of praising with lively joy, but the means with which he has chosen to do this sets this aria somewhat apart from the norm. The reason for this 
as the plethora of rapid, short, long, rhythmic figures, usually encountered as accented 32nd notes moving to a dotted eighth a step lower. He introduces these rhythmic motives, sometimes referred to as a scotch snap, as early as the second bar of the 13-measure opening ritonello, and they are increasingly pervasive as we continue through the movement. Here is the opening ritonello. These rhythms, especially in such abundance, clearly summon up the pre-classical gallant style, as a number of commentators have pointed out, and was perhaps designed to cater to the tastes of a modern young wedding couple. The use of musical gestures from the gallant style is by no means surprising. Bach had experimented in that vein on and off for a couple of decades at this point. But still, the degree to which the style dominates here is somewhat surprising. As the soloist enters, the first three lines of text are set twice, with a fair amount of repetition, as we head toward the new key of D major. The bass soloist indulges in some of the short-long rhythmic patterns in his melody as well, but less pervasively than in the opening instrumental ritonello, and mixed in with more traditional rhythms based on eighth and sixteenth notes. As the movement continues, instrumental ritonellos alternate with recurrences of the bass melody now increasingly exploiting those same short, long, gallant rhythms. We'll hear the first part of the aria, starting with the entrance of the bass. Redet Gottes Güt und Treu, Gottes Güt und Treu, Redet in Wiedringer Freude, Reiset Gott, verlobte Weine. Reiset Gott, verlobte Weine. Rühmet in Mitträger Freude. Reiset Gott, verlobte Weine. As the aria proceeds, Bach begins to explore other tonal centers, particularly B minor, and on the way to E minor, we hear an excellent example of word painting, when Bach introduces an unusually long and complex vocal melisma on the words Freut, or rejoice. A shortened version of the ritonello takes us back to G major, where the bass re-enters with its original text and a slightly altered version of its original melodic statement ending as it began on G major. A variant of the internal ritonello takes us to the end of the movement. The next recitative for soprano, beginning in E minor and ending in D major, employs the text, Well, a bond joins them in a way that prophesies so much well-being. The priest's hand will now lay the blessing on your married state on your heads, and when the power of the blessing thrives henceforth in you, then praise the Father's hand of the highest, he himself ties your bond of love and allows that what he began should also reach a longed-for end. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Melodically, this is pretty much standard fare, but it's a remarkable recitative nevertheless, as Wolf and others point out, and that is due to its elaborate orchestral accompaniment, contributed by two flutes and oboes de mort. The flutes begin by rapid, rather ethereal-sounding, ascending scale flourishes, the first leading the way and the second close on its heels. Against this backdrop, the oboes move in more sustained phrases, mostly together, to suggest the bonding referred to in the text. The combination of these two pairs of instruments makes an effect which may be unparalleled in Bach's recitatives. Here's the beginning of the recitative. Another formidable chorus follows in D major, and this time in 3-4. The text is, We come, your holiness, everlastingly great God, to praise. The beginning stems from your hands. Through your omnipotence you can accomplish it and show that your blessing is mighty. It's unusual to have two ambitious choral movements in one cantata, and this one is in da capo form and again employs the contrast between the solo group and the full chorus. Let's look for just a minute at the first eight bars of the opening instrumental ritonello, which presents two distinctive thematic ideas, both of which are to play an important role. Here's a simplified piano version of the first. The first idea is based on an ascending scale line, which, although moving only in eighth notes, resembles to some extent the faster-moving ascending lines that played an important role in the first chorus of the cantata. Here, though, the ascending lines are presented differently. Over punctuating chords by trumpets and timpani, not in my simplified example, the first violins and first oboe present the ascending passage together. It is then repeated three times, twice a third higher, as the remaining strings and oboe fill in underneath to eventually create a series of first inversion chords, a device dating back to the Middle Ages that Bach has employed before on various occasions. The next idea, presented in the next four bars, is more rhythmically diverse, starting with a distinctive rhythm employing a mild syncopation, which is repeated sequentially down a step and moving to a familiar Bach pattern linking together a series of eighths and two sixteenths which, as you may recall, Schweitzer dubbed Bach's joy motive. Here is a highly simplified example of the next four bars showing only the melody. It's really the rhythmic identity of this second idea which plays a major role. The melodic contour is inverted as often as not when we proceed. When the voices enter after 20 measures, it's the solo quartet that enters first, with a theme based initially on the first four bars of the ritonello, but breaking off in favor of a somewhat more slow-moving idea featuring larger leaps ascending and descending. A brief ritonello intervenes, based more on the second four bars of the original ritonello, and then the complete chorus enters, based very closely, at least initially, on the thematic ideas from the opening ritonello, before moving on to broader, sequentially repeated motives. To this point, Bach has employed a rhythmically lively but mostly homophonic texture. But, as the first section continues, the upper voices break off into shorter, repeated motives, splintered off from the second four bars of the ritonello, against the more continuous melodic flow from the tenors and basses. After another brief ritonello, the solo quartet enters again with their initial motive, alto first, then soprano, tenor, and bass. This is really just the tossing of the opening motive from one voice to another. It's not really imitation as such, but it's effective, and the different groupings of voices and the again very active trumpet parts and repeated rhythmic patterns all assure that the momentum stays strong throughout. Let's hear that much of the movement.
after the solo quartet has taken its turn, including a virtuosic flurry of activity from the solo bass on the words God Almighty, we hear another brief ritonello. Then the full chorus returns, largely replicating the initial ritonello while the bass briefly continues his soloistic activity against it. The full chorus then concludes this section in the key of D major in a blaze of glory, praising the everlastingly great God. The middle section, beginning in B minor, introduces the text, The beginning stems from your hands. Through your omnipotence you can accomplish it and show that your blessing is mighty. The solo quartet begins with the same ascending eighth note passage that has opened each new section of the movement and continues to employ that idea to some extent throughout. But other new thematic ideas are present as well, and combined with the contrast in keys, this results in a reasonable amount of contrast with the first section of the chorus. After a clever little orchestral transition, which references motives from its opening ritonello, but sounds remarkably fresh doing it, the full chorus returns, still in B minor, with a variant of the solo quartet statement, and takes us to the end of the middle section with a cadence on F-sharp minor. Then, of course, we decapo, and the entire first section of the chorus is repeated. This constitutes the entire first part of the cantata. In earlier versions, the second part, probably meant to be performed after the ceremony, may have had two additional movements. But in this final version, there is only one. Box setting of a traditional chorale melody employing the first verse of Paul Gerhardt's hymn, now give thanks and bring your praise, you men in the world, to him whose praise the angel hosts proclaim continually in heaven. We've heard two very different wedding cantatas by Bach today. The first, BWV 202, a more intimate affair, opened with a masterful soprano aria that exhibited a wide emotional range. But that cantata appeared to change chorus stylistically over the next several movements to a more popular idiom. The second cantata, BWV 195, is a grander and apparently more serious affair from start to finish focusing on praising God at least as much as encouraging the young married couple. But it, too, had some popular elements, mostly centered in a bass aria that may be as consistently gallant in its style as any that Bach ever composed. The first of these cantatas is altogether more personable in its appeal, and its popularity is no surprise. But the second has its moments as well and together they represent the wide stylistic range that Bach had available to him in his musical celebrations of one of life's most important occasions. For the next episode, we're going to take a look at two of Bach's sonatas for violin and harpsichord.